This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. It's great to be here uh, with you all. Um, I think that you know this is a good time to try and uh, establish not only what uh, U.S. policy towards Latin America uh, is doing right now, but also uh, what have been the uh, achievements and also the limits over the past few years, and even if you we like the past uh, few decades, especially if we address the cases of what we could call the uh, three dictatorships, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and the challenges that may arise from other countries backsliding uh, from democratic uh, rule in the coming uh, years, for example, the case of El Salvador. Um, I think it's really a lesson in frustration, and not just a frustration for the United States, but frustration for uh, many countries and many people. Because, well, the case of Cuba is obvious. We all know it in office or as academics. We've lived through this, Richard, um, more than 60 years of uh, the embargo, ostracism, uh, either the complete absence of diplomatic relations or uh, poor substitutes with a couple of years of exception. All of this has not led to any significant change in the Cuban regime. Obviously, there are always um, <clears throat> items that one can point to. And after President Obama's visit, perhaps there were more of those items than before. Uh, but uh, the backsliding, even in relation to, to that moment, has been very significant in Cuba with the repression of uh, the some of the actors or leaders or participants in the July 11th demonstrations. Um, the same seems to be true in, in Venezuela. Uh, just about everything has been tried um, from being uh, nice, um, not only on the part of the United States, but of everyone in Latin America at the very beginning of President Hugo Chavez's um, rule, um, to uh, unabashed attempts to overthrow uh, Nicolás Maduro, Chavez's successor, including sanctions uh, of all sorts, individual, economic, oil purchases, etc., all sorts of conspiracies to overthrow Maduro from the harebrained to somewhat more rational ones all failed. And at the same time, I don't know how many attempts at some kind of negotiation and some kind of uh, political solution have also been tried and have also failed with the, the Norwegians, the Dominicans, the Spaniards, just about everybody and their cousin has tried to find some kind of uh, solution or way out of the Venezuelan uh, mess, probably the best term for what has been going on there, and all of this has failed. 
And uh, if we look at the Nicaraguan case, especially the last four or five years since the mass demonstrations in 2018, but also the uh, recurrent elections and electoral uh, shenanigans carried out by President Ortega and his wife, um, it also seems that uh, every attempt uh, at uh, having uh, stopping the democratic backsliding uh, from OAS resolutions to some kind of uh, sanctions to trying to uh, trying to apply the Inter-American Democratic Charter, uh, those have not succeeded either. Uh, so I think there is a real issue here of what does the hemispheric community, what does the United States in particular do, what does the hemispheric community do when you have these cases one of which Cuba goes back long before any of us were around, but the other two are quite current and uh, involve the other Latin American, the other hemispheric nations as much as they involve um, the United States. And clearly there, I think there's no good answer. Um, I don't, I'm not totally satisfied with the type of approach that some have been uh, suggesting for years uh, in Washington and elsewhere, which is to uh, let sleeping dogs lie. If uh, these countries want to have uh, regimes that are undemocratic or authoritarian or repressive and or uh, corrupt, etc., cetera, uh, that's uh, their own business and let them do it. Um, that I don't think in the case of Latin America is a good idea. By the way, I don't think it's a good idea anywhere. And uh, I know the Europeans are having these problems with uh, Hungary and Poland, and they don't know very well what to do either. Um, but I don't like that idea of just saying, well, it's their own damn business. Let them do whatever they want. Um, it's also true that ostracism, ex uh, expulsion from uh, different uh, organizations, whether it's uh, the OAS or the uh, United Nations Human Rights Council now, as is the case with Russia, uh, any of the examples we use uh, don't seem to be don't seem to work. So, in one case, you have um, policies that are doubtfully moral and doubtfully acceptable. And in the other case, you have policies that are doubtfully effective. Um, and I think this is the challenge that um, we face. Um, addressing uh, the accompanying issue of uh, what can the United States do when it tries uh, to enlist other countries in its approach, I think this is a, a fundamental requirement of any kind of successful. Uh, policy, any kind of successful approach, um, especially in Latin America, without uh, other countries accompanying the United States in all of these cases and others that could uh, emerge. And I, I repeat again the, the issue, the challenge that may very well soon exist with regard to El Salvador, and perhaps not only in El Salvador, um, without other countries uh, acting together with the United States, not either in front or behind the United States, but together with Washington, 
Uh, I don't see how any kind of policy can be successful. Although, as I already said extensively, I insist that it's not sure it can be successful even with other countries. But without them, I certainly don't um, see any possibility of this happening. Now, the main problem there, of course, in enlisting other countries is that there are countries and countries in the hemisphere and in Latin America. And obviously, uh, whether it's the small Caribbean states or the small Central American states or some of the smaller South American states do not carry the same weight as, let's say, uh, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia or Chile, uh, regardless of its size, but for its uh, historic symbolic record. Um, so uh, if you don't have Mexico and Brazil along, alongside you, it's very difficult to go anywhere, to get anywhere. Um, but it has been a long time now since there has been really any kind of affinity um, or any kind of... Um, similarity in approach to many of these matters between Mexico and Brazil. There may have been a little bit of that uh, with Cedillo and Fernando Enrique Cardoso, perhaps a little bit, but various for a very brief period between uh, Fox and Cardoso also. But ever since Lula uh, was elected at the end of 2002 and until today, Mexico and Brazil have been out of sync on these issues. Uh, and I'm not referring only to the country by country questions, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, but also on the more fundamental questions of uh, working with the United States, uh, non-intervention in uh, the domestic affairs of other countries, the collective defense of democracy, the importance attached to the defense of human rights, etc. So it's not just a question of enlisting countries, it's which countries. And the problem in Latin America has been that uh, over the last 20 years, uh, at least the larger countries have not, do not seem to have been in sync at all with regard either to the issues in question or the country cases in question. And that is uh, an enormous challenge. Um, we saw it with the Lima Group, um, in the case of Venezuela, obviously in the case of Cuba, now going back to the early 60s, and uh, again in the case of Nicaragua, where the votes simply haven't been there at the OAS to invoke the, uh, the charter, the Inter-American Democratic Charter. The votes are not there, and they're not there because Latin America is divided. And this is perhaps the most serious point for the Latin Americans, if not for the United States, if... Uh, most of the larger countries, important countries in Latin America, do not speak with a single voice on these issues, democracy, human rights, or by the way, on other issues, uh, corruption, uh, climate change, etc., uh, immigration, drugs, uh, then it's very difficult to really work together with the United States on any matters. Um, one of the points that one of the points, of course, that has been stated as an um, obstacle for the United States to be able to achieve some of its goals in Latin America in these cases and other cases that are similar over the years has been the contradiction between 
stated U.S. foreign policy goals and uh, domestic political interests of different administrations. Uh, that's very clear. Let's say, just uh, to take one, uh, to con contemplate one uh, hypothesis, let's say that uh, given the dire situation the Cuban regime is in today and has been now for a good year or two, um, that um, it would be willing to cooperate with the rest of the hemisphere and with the United States and perhaps the Europeans in finding a solution in Venezuela that would truly be um, <clears throat> acceptable to everybody, even if attractive to nobody. Um, and let's say that the Biden administration were able to work with the Cubans and engage the Cubans for something of this sort, uh, given the enormous leverage the Cubans have in Venezuela, and still have, perhaps not so much in Nicaragua, but certainly in Venezuela, though I think in Nicaragua also. Um, the Biden administration would be uh, put in a very difficult situation if in order to engage the Cubans in this endeavor, uh, it were to be asked to uh, roll back many of Trump's policies towards Cuba and at least return to uh, the Obama normalization status. Uh, it would be hard pressed to do this because uh, there would be a lot of people, both Democrats and the Republicans, particularly in the Senate, but not only in the Senate, that would li make life miserable uh, for President Biden and for Secretary Blinken and for a bunch of people if there was any movement on the Cuban question right now. Um, and without some kind of uh, carrot that the Biden administration would use with the Cubans, on Venezuela, uh, it's inconceivable that they would be cooperative or helpful in any way. It might be inconceivable anyway, but even if we were just, to, you know, um, contemplating this possibility, right there we have the problem. Uh, this is a problem which I imagine uh, the Biden administration is confronting right now with the Cuban migration issue, which is now attaining uh, Mariel likes like levels uh, in the sense that it appears that we're on the road to reaching the 100,000 Cubans uh, being um, apprehended at the U.S.-Mexican border over the last four, five, six months. Uh, remember, Mariel was 100,000, at least ballpark figure may have been a little bit more than that. Um, uh, the Biden administration has forced the Mexicans again to accept Cubans, though I'm not sure I entirely understand what that means. I know what was leaked to the press, but I'm not sure I understand what that means, particularly if you look at the numbers that apparently were used, 100 Cubans a day, uh, that's a drop in the bucket. It really doesn't make that much of a difference uh, if that's the only number that they're playing with. Um, and especially, you know, trying to understand what the Mexicans are going to do. Basically, what the Biden administration has to do is what the Clinton administration did in 1994, which is to reach an agreement with the Cubans whereby they will stop the uh, migration flows through Nicaragua. It's very simple. Uh, I mean, we all know that uh, these uh, this new flow from 
Cuba to Nicaragua and on land through Mexico to the United States is being actively encouraged by the Cubans. Uh, the best way to stop it is for the Cuban government to uh, no, no, not allow people to leave that easily through Nicaragua or for Nicaragua to uh, establish, uh, re-establish visa requirements like other countries have done, uh, Panama and Ecuador in most recent times. Uh, and are the Cubans going to do that for free? Uh, I doubt it. And if not, then what can the Biden administration uh, reasonably offer without getting into all sorts of trouble again in the Senate? I know I'm just being very negative here, uh, Richard. I uh, go back many years uh, with my negativism, uh, and uh, I, I appreciate his his uh, reluctance to be as negative himself, <laughs> and rightly so. But I I do see these challenges as very being very difficult to meet for all of the reasons I. Uh, I outlined, including this last one of U.S. domestic policy, uh, especially at a time when uh, there is um, such a precarious equilibrium or balance in the Senate and in the House on matters such as these and when states such as uh, Florida are so important uh, in the electoral equation, whether it's for the House, for the Senate, or for the presidency. So I think that uh, you know, these are the challenges I uh, I see. Um, I wish I had more constructive, more positive sounding, more hopeful um, responses or possible solutions to these challenges. I, I don't, uh, but I think the first ish way to address this is to acknowledge that we have this problem and we have had it, if you like, going back to the 1948 Bogota Charter and the founding of the OAS. Uh, theoretically, this is a community of democracies. Uh, that's also what the purpose of all of the Inter-American Democratic Charter was. And every other, all these other meetings, including several summits of the Americas dating back to 1994 when Richard was uh, uh, at the NSC. Um, uh, at least acknowledging that we have a problem or we have a challenge and that we've tried a whole bunch of responses to that challenge or those challenges and haven't really found them uh, yet. First, I want to thank Jorge Castaneda, former um, Minister of Foreign Relations for Mexico, for his um, excellent remarks. Um, this panel um, is... Um, is focusing on the review of current U.S. policies amidst changing geopolitics. Um, in addition to um, Jorge Castaneda, we have with us U.S. former U.S. ambassador to Venezuela and Mexico and Zambia, Jeff Davido. We have Carlos Fernando Chamorro, who's the founder and editor of Confidential. And we have Mark Schneider, the senior advisor for the Americas Program at the Human Right and Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Um, Jorge, um, you've just heard. Um, at this time, I want to um, um, introduce Carlos Chamora. Carlos is an um, in, independent investigative reporter um, and journalist from Nicaragua. He founded uh, Confidential, um, which is an online uh, weekly publication that does investigative reporting focusing on 
uh, Nicaragua. He hosts a television show called Esta Semana, which is currently under censorship in Nicaragua. Since June 2022, Chamora has been in exile in Costa Rica after his newsroom was illegally occupied by the Nicaraguan police. During the first Sandinista regime and through 1994, Chamora was the editor-in-chief of the Sandinista new- newspaper, um, Barrancada. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Carlos Chamora. Uh, take it away. Thanks a lot to the Institute of the Americas and to my fellow uh, panelists, Jorge Castañeda, Ambassador Davido, Mark Snyder, and, and Richard Feinberg. I'm a journalist, not an academic or a policymaker, but a reporter who is used to ask questions rather than to have the answers to the topics of this panel. So my remarks are based on my experience covering the Nicaraguan crisis, looking at the relationship between the U.S. and the Ortega regime in the last four years. Let me start with a brief personal comment. Uh, my newsroom, Confidencial, was assaulted by the police for the second time in my May 2021, during the beginning of the new wave of repression that ended up with the electoral crackdown with the detention of 40 citizens, including seven aspiring presidential candidates of the oppositions. I'm in exile in Costa Rica to avoid imminent detention, to preserve my freedom and keep doing journalism while political prisoners are forced to be silent. I face an arrest order and an accusation for so-called money laundering for the crime of doing investigative journalism. In this same spurious political trial, my sister Cristiana, an aspiring presidential candidate, my brother, Pedro Joaquin, have already been condemned to penalties from eight to nine years in prison. Other political and civic leaders like aspiring presidential candidates, Juan Sebastián Chamorro or Félix Maradiaga, are facing penalties of 13 years in prison for the so-called crimes of conspiracy against national sovereignty. Four female political prisoners, Dora Maria Tellez, Tamara Davila, Ana Margarita Vigil, and Suyen Barahona, have been held in solitary confinement during 11 months in prison under a system of torture and isolation that already killed retired General Hugo Torres, who died in police custody. So there is a need of extreme urgency to act in the Nicaraguan crisis for both humanitarian and political reasons. But at the same time, it requires a middle-run strategy, both national and international, because it doesn't seem to be a short-term way out while the leadership of the opposition is in prison or in exile. I have always been a strong believer that we must look for the solution of the Nicaraguan crisis in Managua, not in Washington or Brussels. And therefore, the challenge is how to put maximum political pressure for it in Nicaragua. But at the same time, you cannot defeat through a civic resistance strategy a strong dictatorial regime, which is based in the total control of the state and fierce repression without international isolation to weaken the regime, and even more, without strong international allies to strengthen the pro-democracy movement. This requires a kind of simultaneity between maximum domestic pressure and international pressure, a synchronization of external and internal political pressure, which in the case of Nicaragua, it has been totally absent. Between April 18 and May 30, 20. Uh, 2018, 
the civic insurrection without any support from the international community radically changed the balance of domestic political power in Nicaragua. A new political majority unleashed a formidable torrent of social forces that united in rejection of the brutality of state repression demanding free elections. Between May and June 2018, when domestic pressure against the Ortega-Murillo regime was greatest, international pressure from the US, from the OAS, and from the European Union was weaker or almost non-existent. This is the moment in which staffer Caleb McCarthy, acting as a US Senate representative and the State Department representative, met in Managua with President Ortega and Vice President Murillo, with former Ambassador Laura Dogu, to explore the possibility of a democratic transition through electoral reforms and anticipated election. Ortega never gave a clear answer of his intention, but the US envoy was optimistic that there was going to be a kind of a political negotiation. However, the opposite happened. In the following 50 days, Ortega buried the expectation of a negotiation to settle the terms for reforms and the democratic transition that has been proposed in the national dialogue. And he closed the political space by the deployment of his police and paramilitary repressive forces. The fatal operation cleanup left hundreds of people dead or as political prisoners and thousands wounded, forcing tens of thousands into exile in Costa Rica, the US and Spain mostly. I can't blame the US policy for this short-term failure because the international community had little influence on the authoritarian regime then and the deficit of effective pressure was rather related with the lack of strategic leadership of the civic insurrection. Certainly there was some degree of coordination and dialogue between the different groups, but there was no strategic leadership to decide how to keep the foot on the accelerator to put maximum pressure on the regime in its moment of greatest political weakness to displace Ortega and Murillo from power. Since September 2018, after the civic protests were massacred by police and paramilitary forces with the complicity of the army, in Nicaragua we have lived under a police state. A police state is a de facto situation where no state of emergency had been established but freedom of reunion, freedom of mobilization, and freedom of the press and of expression have been suppressed. However, there was a second opportunity for a political change in March 2019 during the second national dialogue between the government and the Alianza Civica, when Ortega pledged before international witnesses from the OAS and the Vatican to suspend the police state. But three months later, not only did he did he not comply, but he also reinforced the police state with repressive laws and eventually captured all political leaders of the opposition, including five who have signed the agreement at the national dialogue, establishing a pattern of international impunity. This was a major failure of the US and the international community that did not have any means of pressure to force Ortega to comply with the agreements of the national dialogue. Finally, Ortega eliminated the right to elect and be elected by canceling the elections when he imprisoned the seven uh, opposition presidential pre-candidates in 2021 
and proclaimed himself president on January 10, 2022, after being reelected in an electoral force. Four years later, the situation is completely reversed. International condemnation and external pressure is growing, while domestic resistance is crushed by the police state. More than 50 countries have declared the illegitimacy of the November 7 election, and more than 60 senior officials of the regime and some institutions and companies, such as the police, the public ministry, the Supreme Electoral Council, have been subject to international sanctions by the U.S. Treasury, the U.K., Canada, and the European Union. However, external pressure does not have a direct impact on restoring democratic freedoms. The condemnation by the Organization of American States and the European Union and individual sanctions against the dictatorship officers are necessary but not sufficient for the restoration of democracy. A dictatorship like the Ortega-Murillo regime can survive sanctions and stay in power longer, but it cannot last one week or one month without, without the police state. So the major challenge for both the international community and the Nicaragua pro-democracy movement it has to, is how to establish a conditionality between external pressure and the restoration of domestic freedoms. In conclusion, the effectiveness of U.S. policies and the OAS facing an authoritarian government, like the case of Nicaragua, should be analyzed in relation with five factors. One, the impact of these policies in the domestic situations. This implies the restoration of political freedom, the suspension of the police state, and the liberation of all political prisoners. International sanctions may weaken the regime, but if they do not restore democratic freedom, they will not strengthen the pro-democracy movement. Two, the need of simultaneity between foreign and domestic pressure, and that the lack of synchrony between external and national pressure, the international community cannot compensate for the weakness of the opposition under attack by the dictatorship. External pressure is necessary to encourage the strengthening of the pro-democracy movement, but it cannot replace it, and even less can it pretend to micromanage the opposition with a short-term vision, putting at risk its own legitimacy and credibility. Three, the capacity to build international and regional alliances to isolate the regime. There has been a more a much more multilateral approach with the Biden administration in comparison with the Trump government. And we have seen a higher involvement of Canada, the European Union, and the UK. But there is still a missing link in Central America and in Latin America with the absence in these international coalitions of countries like Honduras, Guatemala, Mexico, and Argentina. And that has a negative impact at the OAS political decision capacity. Four, there are at least two important pillars of power for the Ortega regime that, are, that remain untouched. On the one hand, the Central American Integration Bank, which is the most important source of public finance for Ortega. And on the other, the business branch of the Nicaraguan army, the Instituto de Previsión Social Militar, that is also related with the pension system of the army officers. The discontent among public employees, civilian and the military, 
and the internal cost of corruption provoked by this personalistic uh, family dictatorship, the Ortega Murillo group, are increasingly notorious in Nicaragua. But there are no signs that these fissures will transform into cracks and division of power unless there is a higher level of national and international political pressure against the pillars of the regime. And five, and finally, there is also a need for a specific policy towards Nicaragua that, different, that differentiates our country from the rest of Central America, as well as from Cuba and Venezuela. The US has, has a special envoy for Central America, which is focused on the Northern Triangle and excludes Nicaragua. Although there is an increasing migration crisis in Nicaragua with 250,000 new migrants in the last four years, mostly to Costa Rica and recently increasingly going to the US. The impunity with which a failed totalitarian dictatorship operates in Nicaragua is also having a political regional implication in Central America about the future of governments with authoritarian tendencies in El Salvador, Guatemala, or Honduras, which see themselves in the mirror of Ortega. On the other hand, while Nicaragua shares the same dictatorial pattern and practices with Cuba and Venezuela, and they are strong allies with Russia and China, there is a major difference with these countries that requires specific policy towards Nicaragua, and it is the economy, which continues to be led by the private business sector. The persecution against businessmen implies economic extortion and political repression, but does not yet contemplate a policy of economic nationalization. So although the political crisis has generated recession, investment stoppage, and more impoverishment for the population, the economy has achieved a slight recovery. It is not collapsing due to the dynamism of the foreign sector and exports and to the impact of the increase in family remittances on consumption. Ortega's alliance with the private sector that allow him to govern the country since 2009 to 2018 with the support of the Venezuelan economic cooperation with no democracy and transparency was broken during the 2018 massacres and remains so until today. Among the political prisoners that have been condemned, there are four prominent businessmen, among them, Jose Adán Aguirre, Michael Healy, and Luis Rivas. So the leadership of the private sector is paralyzed by the threat of repression. While the Catholic Church exercises a strong moral leadership, the private business sector represent the muscle of the national economy, which can shorten or lengthen the crisis of the dictatorship. The current wait and see policy implies contemplating the national collapse in slow motion. While there is a debate in the US about Nicaragua's eventual suspension in CAFTA with an indiscriminate impact on employment and the economy. On the contrary, the decision to put limits and breaks on tyranny to gradually recover freedoms entails enormous risks, but above all, it requires the unity in action of all the forces of the country, and in particular, the incentives of the international community and the US 
to strengthen the civic role of the private sector and Nicaraguan civil society. Thank you. Carlos, thank you for those remarks. At this time, um, I want to introduce uh, Jeff Davido, who's a senior counselor for the Cohen Group, um, and as mentioned, former U.S. ambassador to um, Venezuela, Mexico, and Zambia. Um, Jeff, take it away. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to all of the panelists who have so far uh, provided great insight. Uh, the first uh, uh, panel that we had, I think, focused on uh, what is accurately called uh, authoritarian resilience. Uh, I think in this panel, we're going to be looking at something which, for want of a better term, just let me call uh, democratic uh, impotence. Uh, and uh, let's look at what the United States has done in the past, what it's doing now, and why I think it's fair to say that in terms of our uh, ability to change the situations in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, we have really demonstrated weakness, incapacity, and failure. That failure is in some ways inbred into our system, into our own democratic system, which is, has a plurality and a, 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 of divisive views about what we should be doing. There is no unanimity in the United States to argue that in point of fact, and I, I say this with uh, apologies uh, to begin with, especially to someone like Carlos Chamorro, who I respect, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua just aren't that important as far as the American polity uh, is concerned. I think there is no view that would say that what happens in those three countries is a matter of significant national security to the United States. In the past, and we grew up, some of us grew up with this, uh, younger people could read about it, certainly there was a perception that what might happen in Cuba, uh, what was happening in Cuba, what was happening in other countries, Panama, Grenada, for instance, directly impacted American national security and therefore called for strong responses. Uh, invasion of Grenada, uh, uh, Panama, uh, the equivocating attempts uh, over many, many years, including the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. That doesn't exist now. It is a function of the end of the Cold War, uh, where we no longer view Latin America generally and these countries specifically as uh, potential threats to our well-being. That is a major change. Secondly, there is a, uh, in addition to the lack of perception of national security concern, 
there is an inevitable incoherence in our political system because we don't speak with one voice. We have uh, uh, a multiplicity of views in Congress, in various administrations over the years. And just how we administrations navigate this causes problems in and of itself. Successive administrations in one way or another sought to influence the growth of, let's say, civil society, to use an example, in Cuba, either by promoting the private sector or promoting uh, perhaps the use of internet or during normalization under Obama, uh, opening up the possibilities of greater interaction uh, through tourism and other means. The problem is, is that the, as these policies are inevitably defended, as they must be uh, in the American public opinion and in Congress, the defense has largely been, whether publicly stated or privately stated, well, all of this, all of these efforts will lead to regime change by developing civil society in Cuba, by uh, helping small businessmen function, by uh, allowing tourists to go in, all of this will open that society, bring oxygen to it, and that will ultimately lead to regime change. Well, the Cuban government isn't stupid. It's only going to allow what it wants to allow and use its mechanisms of control security and what have you, to keep all of that well in check. The issue is, as Jorge Castaneda, Castaneda said, there are no new good ideas. The U.S. is unwilling, and I, I think there's a general agreement here, to use uh, its uh, quite immense powers, whether it's military or uh, counterintelligence or uh, releasing the CIA uh, uh, to do the kinds of things it might have done 30, 40, 50 years ago. So in this context of what I am calling perhaps unfairly democratic impotence, and which is manifested with uh, throughout Latin America with a lack of focus on Latin America as an important part of the world, as far as the United States is concerned, and the divisions that we have in our own society, uh, it's very difficult to come up with any sort of new policy that will uh, in, in any way seriously weaken the resilience of the authoritarian regimes. Now, finally, let me say, does this mean that we should do nothing? Uh, should we just, as Jorge Castaneda criticized those people who say, let sleeping dogs lie? No, that's not something that we should do. We should, one for one thing, increase the focus on Latin America 
in our own body politic and on the lack of democracy in these uh, resilient authoritarian societies. We still have some implements that perhaps we could use more effectively. Public diplomacy is something that I think has fallen into decay. Uh, it is, I think, worth looking at, perhaps not in this panel, as to what kind of messages the United States government is sending uh, to Latin America, generally to these three countries we're talking about, either through the statements of our leadership, uh, through the actions of our leadership, through ongoing public diplomacy, through uh, uh, old and new means, whether it's radio, TV, internet, Facebook, and what have you. I think we're deficient in what we're doing there. And perhaps we could do more. Uh, certainly, the ability of the United States to develop a coherent strategy with all of Latin America for the reasons that we've discussed this morning are, are obvious. But I don't think we should give up in looking for allies in Latin America as we continually stress our objections to the human rights and other violations of these three states. So let me stop there. I, I regret, much as Jorge Castaneda regretted, our, our inability to come up with brand new ideas that could really break these Gordian knots. But at the same time, I don't think we have to be quite as helpless as we appear to be. Let me stop at that point and let better minds come up with answers. Thank you. And thank you so much for your remarks and your perspective. At this time, um, I would like to introduce Mark Schneider, Senior Advisor for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, who will provide his own perspectives. Mark, take it away. Thank you very much, Richard. And I want to thank the Institute of the Americas and uh, um, my uh, good friend Richard Feinberg for inviting me to join this, uh, this panel of colleagues and, uh, and people that I respect a great deal on reviewing current U.S. policies to address the reemergence and the continuation of authoritarian regimes in the Western Hemisphere. Um, I agree with Jeff and also with Jorge um, that the reality is that we are all frustrated. Um, to some degree, we thought that after the military dictatorships of the 1970s and 80s, the end of the Soviet Union, that the dangers of interstate conflict globally and the undermining of democratic governments regionally were disappearing. Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown us that a great deal more needs to be done to protect the basic infrastructure of peace. Uh, it's supposedly ingrained in the UN Charter. And we're also frustrated and not having come up with effective policies under, I think, both Republican and Democratic administrations to bring the, the political trend in the region back to where we thought it was going to be after the adoption of Resolution 1080 in 1991 and, and the adoption of the Inter-American Democratic Charter in 2001. I mean, when you think about it, Latino Barometro has found less support for democracy in the region than a de decade ago. Freedom House uh, has seen in the last several years the proportion of population living in freedom in countries that ranks as free drop from 40% to 20%. 
So I guess the question is not only where do we go from here, but how did we get here? And, and to some degree, I, I want to go back to uh, something that, front, that uh, Francis Fukuyama recently noted um, with respect to the hemisphere and looking at the decline in liberalism and the threats to a liberal world order to recognize, he argued that the Washington consensus resulted in cuts to social spending and to demonizing the state. And he quoted, as he said, quote, removing the buffers that protected individuals from market excesses, leading to large increases in inequality over the past two generations. I've long, long argued that that, that is the increases in inequality in the hemisphere, and also the failure to deal with corruption, were undermining popular faith in government in the region, and that, that when those governments are democratically elected in democracy itself. And it opened the door, unfortunately, to populists of every stripe who have no commitment to democracy, democratic institutions, or democratic values. So wh what do we do? And here, I agree with Jeff, we don't have any good answers, but also we can't simply, as Jorge said, uh, sort of let sleeping dogs lie. We have to identify, and some of the panelists today did, which groups support democracy in the region and try to help empower them. And that means civil society, and ideally, as Richard said, those political parties who not only speak about democracy, but act to defend it, along with those parts of the private sector who do the same. And second, and I guess this is more with respect to the current backsliding and the, the reemergence of, of uh, authoritarian regimes, is to identify which forces in those countries are threatening democracy and the rule of law. And again, that clearly includes some political parties, and it also includes many of the power elites, and determine how our responses can best stymie them, and it requires doing it early. On Nicaragua, it was clear that there was virtual silence and the lack of any regionally developed strategy after Daniel Ortega was elected in 2006 and then moved to take control over other institutions in the country, including the courts, electoral tribunal, and threatening the free press. So the explosion and repression that we've seen recently did not begin with the Sanista forces violence following the protests of 2018. It began much earlier, and the brutal violations of human rights then and now require a response. And that, as everyone has mentioned, means identifying how policies, ours, and hopefully those with the region, can impact Ortega's security structure, military, police, and paramilitary. Um, Carlos Shimono mentioned the issue of their pensions. He also mentioned the fact that those forces have not been impacted by policies thus far. And I would add that other countries where backsliding has occurred include Guatemala, where governments and part of the elites went after CSIG and the Trump administration was silent and was accurately portrayed as not caring about the rule of law. Jorge said you couldn't go along with and ignore the consolidated authoritarian regimes. I agree with him. But the reality is it's very hard to come up with policies uh, to deal with the resilience of the authoritarian regime in Cuba. I think that's part of what the answer that the Obama administration was doing was to change the context and to hope then that moving towards some kind 
of sense within Cuba that there was going to be an opening could begin to bring about some form of negotiation. Because ultimately, in all of the countries, you want to try and create a situation in which some form of diplomatic negotiation can move the country, however slowly, towards the restoration of people's rights. Clearly, one size does not fit all in terms of our policy toward those countries. There has to be a separate, distinct policy toward Cuba, toward Venezuela, toward Nicaragua. And third, I think in, in terms of saying, how do we prevent future backsliding and to some degree, further erosion of dem democracy? I think we need to think now about how do we help the countries in the region address poverty, prevent the pandemics, educate children, block illicit trade, and allow safe migration. And what groups in government and society are strengthened by finding shared interests and improved standards of living for those living in poverty, because they're the same ones that are likely to be interested in the return to the rule of law. Two sets of Biden policies to mention. One, which is specifically aimed at those issues, is and actually has different names, but is also moving forward in Europe, some countries and Canada, is something called the Global Fragility Framework. And it basically says we need to look now at countries that are fragile countries and those uh, coming out of conflict, post-conflict countries, and recognize that it takes at least 10 years in dealing with building new institutions. And we need to be supporting them in doing that. And that programming has to focus clearly on those who are left out. The second set of policies is to addressing corruption as a national security policy, uh, which is the Biden administration uh, approach. But again, how we implement it, as others have said, has to be a fundamental element of dialogue with regional partners. We cannot do it alone, nor should we. Anti-corruption also has to strengthen democratic actors in the country, not just the leaders of the political party we like, and it cannot be used, and we need to be sure that we don't support it in being made a partisan weapon as it was in Brazil. If the US can do that with other Latin American partners and be successful, it also will send messages throughout the region. And finally, I think we've heard a great deal that the last administration's policies of sanctions first, strategy virtually never, in dealing with Venezuela and the other countries simply makes no sense. And that's clear. You simply have to have a multilateral diplomatic strategy focuses on what we've just been talking about, the pillars that support the authoritarian regimes now and that are aimed directly on impacting on them. And here, I think it's important. Yes, we're frustrated. And yes, we, some people see a hopeless context. But remember, for those of us who witnessed the aftermath of 200,000 killed in Guatemala, mostly indigenous civilians, the US-sponsored Contra war in Nicaragua, successive massacres in El Salvador, and actually saw political prisoners who'd been tortured in jails in, in Chile and, and Argentina. The situation today is far from hopeless. And we were able, change was able to take place at, in those instances in the region. And I think change can take place again. And I will say again, those who simply say sanctions can never be used effectively, 
That's not true either, but they have to be part of a comprehensive policy. And you need to spell out what actions will result in a lifting of those sanctions. They need to be almost always multilateral. And they need to focus on, ideally, on the people whose behavior you're trying to change. And it may not be initially everything that you want to make happen. And I just want to mention something that in reviews, studies that were take, undertaken of past sanctions in the 1990s, in terms of achieving foreign policy goals, they were 33% effective in what they attempted to accomplish. Now, it's good for baseball, not quite as good for diplomacy. Uh, but remember, those sanctions, when the alternative is military action, sanctions are not a bad approach. They helped bring Iran to the negotiating table, Milosevic to Dayton, in Iraq, at least during the 90s, to allow in the international IAEA. And at various times in this region, diplomacy and the threat of sanctions resulted in political prisoners being released and humanitarian aid allowed in. And we also have not done a very good job, even though there's been attempts at using the Inter-American Democratic Charter. And I think we need to do a better job. It's a lot harder when you don't have an ambassador in, at the OAS or in many of the countries of the region. I'll stop there. Thank you, Mark, for that excellent presentation. Well, we've got time for a few more questions before we start our next session. Um, I'll start with the first one. Um, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, punitive policies of economic sanctions and diplomatic pressures have aimed at reversing democratic backsliding in the case of Nicaragua and Venezuela and regime change in the case of Cuba. Despite these vast asymmetries of power between the U.S. and, the, and these Caribbean basin countries, U.S. policies have not achieve their stated goals. Um, why? Um, additional thoughts? The fact is, is that much of the U.S. action has been rhetorical and not particularly uh, action-oriented. And that, as uh, we, I think, all recognize, that if and when the U.S. government wants to act with great force, and we are seeing an example of that right now vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, it has tremendous capacity to do so. But absent a absence of perception of uh, issues being of great importance to the United States or affecting our national security, and given uh, political divisions within our own country, this uh, failure uh, is, is the norm. Uh, our ability to change the way uh, governments act, uh, apart from very specific issues like on trade or what have you, not only in Latin America, but throughout the world, is very limited. So one of the uh, results or one of the things that we should be focusing on for purposes of analysis is the inherent weakness of even powerful states if they are not willing for good or ill reasons to exercise that power uh, to, to, the, um, to the maximum. It does not mean that there's nothing can be done. Things can be done, and Mark and others have been talking about this, but I think we have to be realistic. Thank you, Jeff. 
Carlos, you had a comment. Uh, do you want to turn on your mic and camera? Yeah. Um, the idea that sanctions would change the behavior of autocrats, uh, that, that doesn't really make sense for me. I would rather think that sanctions would weaken the power of this government, will create rather internal contradictions if they are accompanied by other policies that include strengthening the pro-democracy movement, civil society, and other forces. The, the regime is not going to collapse. Uh, what, what will make it change is the recovery of, let's say, in the case of Nicaragua at least, uh, democratic domestic freedoms and the sort of reorganization of the both political and, and, and civil society uh, movement. So I don't think sanctions should be evaluated in a, like in a short term uh, span of time, like what will be the impact now? Uh, is the impact in the middle term or in long run will, will be feasible? Will they, will they be effective? I think that will depend on other policies like uh, just uh, recently Mark Snyder was uh, mentioning. Mark, you want to? Uh, let, let me just add uh, something on the sanctions literature, Richard, if I could. Yeah, I think just, that, just very quickly. I think that the, the point that, that Carlos made is that it has to be part of a comprehensive diplomatic strategy that, in, that ideally begins with agreement by other countries that they're going to support those actions, which include strengthening democratic forces in the country and the sanctions that targeted against the support structure for those regimes. And that's where we haven't been very effective. And, and I think as Carlos mentioned earlier, we have not really gone after the pensions and nor have we really gone after in the case of Nicaragua, have we tried to, to go after Basie in an effective way? There are a variety of ways we can do that. Jeff noted the US has a great deal of influence when it wants to use the, the the power that it has. If those efforts are supported by other countries, I think you could see a significant set of actions which limit the ability of the regime to finance, let's say, the security forces that it has. Um, that was the, the one thing that I would say on sanctions. The other is, whatever you do on sanctions, you also have to recognize and ahead of time, identify the costs of those sanctions when they impact beyond the specific targets. And you have to take actions to try and ameliorate those, those costs if they obviously are not going to, uh, if those costs are, are borne by um, the population as a whole. And, and that can be done and it has been done, but it has to be part of a full diplomatic strategy. Richard, did you have uh, some thoughts? Yeah, I think what, uh, of course, each case is different, but I think what this sanction literature shows is, is that if you, of course, multi has to be multilateral, has to be prolonged, it has to be uh, determined. Uh, but what you find is if there are limited goals and objectives, as in, in the case of Iran, limiting their nuclear program, uh, then the sanctions have some chance of success. But if the goal is regime change, which face it, guys, that's largely what we're talking about here, even if we're talking about gradual dialogue and uh, serious elections, uh, then uh, sanctions are much less likely uh, to be effective because you're going up against uh, the essential uh, existential interests of the regime. Uh, I also think you have to look at uh, 
What we have seen, in fact, in Cuba, Venezuela, and to a lesser extent in Nicaragua, is that regimes can, in fact, control resources. And you reduce the total resources, but they will be able to maintain a significant chunk of those remaining resources to distribute to their loyalist uh, loyalists in the military, in the political party, in the state, and thereby maintain control. But human suffering has dramatically, dramatically increased in all three of the countries we're talking about. The very same people that we are, are so intent on protecting their rights. And uh, I don't think it's easy to, main, to say, well, well, we'll compensate for that through humanitarian assistance. Uh, we're not going to, we just don't have those resources to compensate fully. Finally, each economy is different. And in Nicaragua, uh, Mark and I have discussed this in the past, but you know the, uh, the Nicaraguans have had a conservative, cautious fiscal monetary policy. They're sitting on three to four billion dollars in international reserves, which covers about six months of their import needs. Uh, so actually, they're not so vulnerable, uh, even if we could tighten up uh, some of, some of the financial flows coming in. Uh, I don't see that being the, uh, the the straw that breaks the camel's back in the Nicaragua case. I want to thank Jorge Castaneda, Jeff Davido, uh, Carlos Chamorro, and Mark uh, Schneider for your excellent presentations. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.